Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my God, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my God, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing the graphic novel The Arrival by Sean Tan. And to help us with our discussion, we have returning all-star guest Kirsta Christensen. Hello! Hello, welcome back. It's been far too long. We need you more frequently, Kirsta. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the Arrival... This text is amazing, listeners. If you are unfamiliar, I just want to let you know. It is a completely wordless graphic novel. So this is going to be an interesting discussion. It is our first time tackling a completely <laughs> silent story. I would have guessed we do silent film before silent graphic novel. Uh, yeah. But here, but here we are. We're, we're actually filming this. We're going to do it entirely in interpretive dance, yes. which will also be silent. Some, so. some meme, if you will. I had a little uh, story while checking this out. Um, so I was at the uh, university library where Kirsta works, and there were two copies of this. And I, I went and checked, and one was gone. I thought, that's probably Kirsta, was it? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. <laughs> so I hurried to get the second copy. And when I was checking out, guys, I had my first being spotted in the wild what? situation. Where oh. uh, the uh, what, what is the official title for the clerk, the person who... <laughs> the, the the circulation desk the circulation the, desk mm-hmm. there we go uh the worker at the circulation desk she's like are you joe dorowski from the protagonist podcast she saw <laughs> it was so intoxicating guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah fame's gone to his head todd he's gonna be insufferable <laughs> yes. uh, and i said yes and uh harry for the protagonist harry. podcast <laughs> <laughs> we've been listening to uh to uh chamber of secrets and that gilderoy lockhart 
Fame is a fickle thing. Fame is a fickle thing, Joseph. Okay, so uh, The Arrival is a wordless graphic novel that was written and illustrated by Sean Tan. And it tells uh, a story of immigration in a world that somewhat-ish resembles our world, but not really. But kind of does, but kind of doesn't. It's really great. So how did we all come to this? I actually remember reading this several years ago. Uh, what, what year was this published again? 2006. 2006. Uh, it was when I was grad school in, at Michigan State. So that, make, that lines up. It was probably pretty soon after it was released uh, in the United States that I read it. Um, and I remember loving it. And I know at uh, the local library a couple times, my daughter has picked it out when we go by the graphic novel section for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't like reread it and thought about it in over a decade, probably at this point, until uh, this week when I was reading it for this podcast. And this was one that you had suggested, Kirsten, right? Yeah. That we yeah. that we cover. And when you once you said it, I thought back. I'm like, oh, that is a really good one. I don't know how the conversation will go, but it's a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> and and were no, you familiar with stuff it? to talk about? And were you familiar with it, Todd? No, I uh, I just read it today, actually. Mm-hmm. So I actually came to it since I did not get a PhD in comics, like some people. Um, I, I actually read a book that was a bunch of interviews of illustrators and included Sean Tan and it had some, um, some excerpts from some of his work, but it was actually, it was actually some short stories from Tales from Outer Suburbia, which is a collection of of kind of short graphic novels of his. Um, And so I thought, well, that's cool. So I read that. And then when I was looking to see what else he'd written, I saw that Arrival was like, you know, on, on, book social media 10 times as many people had read it and had won like 50 awards or something and i'm just like okay well it seems like this is the one i should really read but you know i like the other one too so <laughs> you're a shantan hipster i yes that's right that's right <laughs> you knew it stuff before it was popular <laughs> yeah. okay that's right so let's get into trivia Sean Tan is an Australian artist and writer. His work incorporates elements of fantasy and includes themes of race and culture. His best-known work is The Arrival, which we're discussing today, a wordless graphic novel first published in 2006. Other notable works include Tales from Outer Suburbia, an anthology of illustrated short stories, Lost and Found, a collection of three graphic novellas, and the recently published The Singing Bones, which is a collection of sculptural illustrations inspired by Grimm's fairy tales. Well, that sounds fascinating. Yes. I must find that. <laughs> Sorry, I've got it checked out. Um, <laughs> Sean, Tan's, <laughs> Sean Tan's father is Chinese-Malaysian. He immigrated to Australia in the 1960s to study architecture where he met Tan's Anglo-Australian mother. Tan grew up in a very white suburb of Perth, Western Australia, and consequently stood out among his classmates at school. However, in a recent interview, he said, before long in any primary school class, kids stopped thinking about me as the little Asian kid, but instead as someone who could tell a good joke and draw an excellent dinosaur. I think this fact may have contributed more to my career as an artist and writer than any subsequent education. (laughs) Elementary school pressure. Okay, so um, the source I consulted for the arrival listed more than 30 awards that had won, including the Orialis Award for Young Adult Short Story, the Golden Orialis Award, an Australian Book Industry Award, a Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year Award, the Locus Award for Best Art Book, and a Western Australian Premier's Book Award. It was also a Sybil's Award finalist and a Hugo Award nominee. Question. Yes. Suppose you had written something and it won several awards. At what point does it start to... does it start to feel less special, like less significant to win another one? <laughs> like the um, first one I've got to imagine is like, wow, yes. And then like five, six, like still really good. But when you're at like 27, is it like, well, there's another one through <laughs> the wall. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to put that. I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
it, it probably also depends on the magnitude of the award. Like if you win lots of like, you know, best awards in your best book in your state awards, but then you win a national award or something. Um, it was also it was also yeah, like I feel like the Hugo Award nomination is maybe a bigger deal than the yeah. like the Perth Book Award yeah. nomination or something. Or like if we start handing out awards on our podcast, right? That's <laughs> graphic novel we covered this year, right? But that would, might feel less significant than a Hugo Award nomination. Right. Maybe, maybe <laughs> the best wordless graphic novel that we've ever done on this podcast. In March. Um, okay, the arrival has been translated quote unquote, translated into many foreign languages, including French, Italian, Japanese, German, Mandarin, Polish, Spanish, and Swedish. Okay. I, I really need us to discuss this for a moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like we can't just blow by this. It is completely wordless. Uh, what the author's note the page. and the title. And the title's page. So the title of the arrival is what gets translated, right? And the author's name. <laughs> And the publication information. Yes, the and copyright the, information. And the cover copy. Okay, it has been it has been released, it has been published in many foreign countries. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Several of those translations slash publications oh, gosh. have also won awards. <laughs> the French translation was awarded the Prix du Jury Économique de la Bande Dessinée, as well as a Fauve d'Or d'Angoulême. The Swedish translation won the Peter Pan Prize. That's not me not being able to pronounce Swedish. It really is just called the Peter Pan Prize. <laughs> and the German translation was nominated for a Deutsche Jugendliteraturpreis. This I, is- <laughs> I think some listeners probably wish I had read this trivia, <laughs> but I'm pretty glad that you're here for this one here. So. I, I certainly didn't put those fancy awards in just to show off when I was reading them. That would never happen. Maybe for- as an outtake, yeah. I'll give those a stab. Andrew, and can- <laughs> <laughs> so this is hang on to the very end. Joseph, I'm sure you could have managed the French word for comic book, which I did hear in there. The word nice. Except I think the German word for literature, which sounded like literature. <laughs> it is a related language to English, yes. <laughs> a few cognates floating through there. Yes. Okay. For his other work, Sean Tan has won many other awards, including the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, the Crichton Award, the Dittmar Award, the Drom King Medal, a Hornbook Award, a Hugo Award, the L. Ron Hubbard Illustrators of the Future Contest, a Locus Award, and a World Fantasy Award. And in 2010, he won an Academy Award for co-directing the animated short film The Lost Thing, which was adapted from his 2000 picture book by the same name. Guys, I think we might need to keep our eyes on this Sean Tan guy. <laughs> I think he might be going places. Yeah. <laughs> I think seems I like think he's it. already gone places and left us in the dust. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So before we move on to this uh, long synopsis, uh, which I don't know how long it's going to be, but there's stuff to say. Um, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we, uh, we update our fantasy box office game, discuss things we're currently reading or watching and break down uh, newly released films and trailers. Uh, and we release those monthly and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So we are ready for this synopsis. Okay. Um, for the record, it's challenging to write a written synopsis of a wordless book. <laughs> this is a first for the podcast. Okay. And just to give you a little bit of um, a little bit of. Uh, description. The arrival is illustrated with pencil illustrations that are either in brown and white or black and white. And the drawings vary in size. Sometimes one drawing takes up an entire two-page spread, and sometimes a single page is divided into as many as 12 small drawings. On the first page, we see small images of household objects, a clock, a hat, a tea kettle, a suitcase, and a child's drawing of a family. 
real quick, just to help listeners who have never seen Sean Tan's art, which I would imagine is many of you. Um, if you can think of the pencil work of MC Escher, I think that is a good corollary just mm-hmm. to kind of imagine the way the shading and toning is being done. Uh, that's what you should try and imagine as Kirsten paints a word picture for you. <laughs> On the next it also kind of has it, does it seem like it has like uh tones of um of uh Hugo Cabaret or oh, or sure, Wonderstruck sure. like a little bit of yeah, that Yeah, I agree with that too. It kind of has it kind of has that kind of a vibe uh for me. But with the wind the whimsy of a Windsor McKay if you And and a lot of the graphic style also <laughs> A lot of the graphic style of Monument Valley. Have you guys played Monument Valley on uh, like Not an iPhone that. or iPad? It's a it's a, a puzzle game, and it um, visually it's super similar. It, like the buildings are similar in structure to what we see here. So imagine MC Escher <laughs> meets Wonderstruck meets uh, Monument Valley, and you're pretty close to where we're at. Here. Whimsy of Windsor McKay. Don't forget that. <laughs> Yes, Lindsay, Lindsay, yes. I feel like we're describing a fine wine. <laughs> yes. It's like earthy, fruity, with a hint of rubber. Ho- hopefully something we said yeah. was a touchstone for you, <laughs> right. listener. And you're like, okay, I've got a vague idea now. <laughs> okay. So on the first page, we see small images of household objects, a clock, a hat, a tea kettle, a suitcase, and a child's drawing of a family. On the next page, a man is packing a suitcase, and he packs a photograph of himself, his wife, and their little girl. The family's apartment is sparsely furnished. The apartment's furnishings and the style of clothing worn by the family resemble those of the early 20th century U.S. The man, the woman, and the little girl get dressed and leave the apartment. The man brings the suitcase. As they walk on the street, there is a shadow on the wall above them of a giant spiky tail like the tail of a dragon. In another picture, we see that the city is full of dragons. The man, the woman, and the little girl walk to a train station, and the man gives the girl a small origami-style paper bird, then hugs the little girl and the cheerful woman before he gets on the train to leave. The man sits in a small cabin on an ocean liner. He spends days watching clouds go by. The ocean liner is cramped and full of people. He folds a small paper bird and looks up as a flock of real but strange-looking birds flies over the ship. The ship sails into a harbor in the shadow of a giant statue of two people shaking hands. The man is ordered off the ship and he waits in a long line. Different people inspect his teeth and his eyes and his ears and pin cards with strange symbols on them to his coat. Finally, an official reviews the man's file, stamps his paperwork, and sends him on his way. He rides in a small box about the size of an elevator attached to a large balloon. He flies over a bustling city full of strange buildings and designs. The flying box deposits him in an open square. Using pictures and gestures, the man finds a small apartment to rest. rent. The apartment is cramped and cluttered. He tries using some of the appliances, but he can't figure out how they work or what they do. He opens a large pot and is surprised when an animal jumps out. It looks like a cross between a mouse and a Pac-Man and is about the size of a dog. (laughs) The man unpacks his suitcase and hangs the picture of his family on the wall. The Pac-Man mouse dog wakes the man up in the morning, and he gets ready and goes outside. Using a map, he attempts to navigate the chaotic and familiar city, which is full of flying ships and cone-shaped buildings. The man attempts to decipher a map of the transit system. A woman, who is also waiting nearby, shows him how to buy a ticket using a machine that looks like a cross between a rotary phone and a slot machine. She tells him when the next flying ship is coming. It lands, and the woman and man board the ship as a conductor punches their tickets. The man tells the woman that he's a recent immigrant from another country. She shares that she is also an immigrant. In a flashback, she remembers her old country, where her books were locked away and she had to spend all day shoveling coal into a large furnace. We see an image of her cleaning out the furnace, surrounded by dozens of people who are also shoveling coals into identical furnaces. One day, the woman uses her shovel to break into the room where her books are locked away. She grabs the books and runs to a large train yard where she stows away with her books on a passing train. 
Back in the present, the flying ship lands at its destination. The man thanks the woman and leaves, once again attempting to navigate the strange city. He goes to a market in search of bread. He finds weird tentacles and strawberries with long tails. He shows a man at the market a picture of bread to explain what he's looking for. The market man shows him foods that look like spiral eggplant, a large tube with roots, and a giant artichoke, but no bread. The market man's son suggests bringing the man home for dinner, and they head to a small boat. On the boat is a large pot with a lid. The market man's son opens the lid and a spiky tail pokes out. The man is startled by the spiky tail because it looks like a dragon tail from his old country. However, when the rest of the animal comes out of the pot, it is not a dragon, but instead looks a bit like a fox. The man explains to the market man and his son about the dragons that he escaped. The market man remembers the country he came up where there were giants who used enormous vacuums to vacuum up people. The market man and his wife escaped down a manhole cover, but when they emerged, the city was empty and lifeless. Another man helped them escape from the giants in exchange for a necklace belonging to the wife. The market man and his wife made their way through piles of rubble to a beach with a small rowboat, which they used to row to the new country. In the present, the market man and his son row the man to a dock where they tie the boat up and head home. The market man introduces the man to his wife and she shows him how to prepare various foods. The man and the market man's family laugh and talk and the family plays some strange musical instruments. The man folds an origami animal that looks like the pet fox with a spiky tail and the market man and his wife give the man a small pot as a gift. In the morning, the Pac-Man mouse dog wakes the man up and he gives it a friendly pat. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is the... I love that you call him Pac-Man mouse dog. It kind of reminds me of a like a... Um... Uh, like a Pokemon sure. character, and I think Pac-Man Mouse Dog yeah. kind of works like as a Pokemon name. <laughs> Trying to like figure it. out what to call the thing was one of the challenges I faced in writing the summary. Well, you nailed it. <laughs> you totally. <laughs> the pot from the market man is sitting on is sitting on the man's windowsill. The man cuts up a vegetable that looks like a spiky turnip and gives part of it to the Pac-Man Mouse Dog. The man gets dressed and ventures outside to look for work. He asks many people if they're looking for help, but they all turn him away. He sits on a bench discouraged and sees a man pasting posters up on a wall. The man asks the poster man if he needs help. The poster man agrees to hire the man who begins pasting up the posters. Later, the poster man comes back and is angry at the man because the posters, which are in a language the man cannot read, are all upside down. The poster man fires the man. Next, the man finds a job delivering small boxes to different addresses. He delivers many boxes, but when he tries to deliver one box, he misses a sign indicating danger and is threatened by a giant beast, which causes him to drop the rest of his boxes and run away. Finally, the man gets a job standing in front of a conveyor belt, watching small bottles pass by and throwing away any that are defective. An older man who works near him offers a drink of something that he pours out of a bottle. The older man remembers being a young man and cheerfully marching out of a city with many other young men who all have guns and knapsacks. They march over difficult terrain, and eventually their marching turns into running. They run across a dark field, which turns into a pile of bones. The man returns home on crutches, now missing a leg, and discovers only rubble where his city used to be. In the present, the older man and the man leave the factory at the end of the day and are paid their wages. The older man takes an animal out of his pocket that looks a bit like a lizard. The lizard flies away on semicircular wings, joining other lizard birds in a field. The older man invites the man to come play a game with some friends involving balls and cones on a circular playing field. The man rolls a ball until it hits a cone, and the other players cheer him on. Later, a lizard bird is gathering twigs to make a nest in the pot on the man's windowsill. The man writes a letter to his family and includes an origami bird in the envelope. He puts the letter in a machine about the size of a refrigerator. The machine is attached to a large balloon and it flies away after he posts the letter. A year passes and it is winter in the strange new city. Then spring comes and the lizard bird's babies have hatched in the pot. The man gets a letter from his family and excitedly looks out the window. Far away, he sees a large balloon carrying an elevator-sized box. He runs toward the box, which lands. A woman and a girl exit the box, looking worried. The woman drops her suitcase, and the man loses his hat as they run to embrace each other. On the next page, we see small images of household items. A hat, a child's drawing of a flying ship, some strange appliances, an origami Pac-Man mouse dog, and a family photograph in which the girl looks a little older. 
The man, the woman, and the girl are eating breakfast in their apartment, which is cheerfully decorated. The girl runs outside to play with the Pac-Man mouse dog. She goes to buy some vegetables that look like tomatoes with thick stems growing out of them topped by star-shaped flowers. The girl sees a woman with a suitcase and a map trying to find her way around the city. The woman shows the girl what she's looking for on the map, and the girl points her in the right direction. That was amazing. <laughs> because the end. this Thank you. summary would have been daunting. And I think <laughs> you did a fantastic job. And I just want to say at the very end, yep. the last panel or image in the book is the little girl pointing to the recently arrived person. And I got a little misty eyed uh-huh. when I looked at it. Yeah. 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 No, I have to say it took it took a few hours, it took a couple hours over over a few days to write the summary. Um and after I right actually right after I finished it, I was like, I need to go make a donation to help refugees in the world because these are it was very you know, despite the fact that it's a very um fantasy filled story and now we're kind of moving into the discussion of it like it's it's also just very grounded in in the real hardship that people go through yeah um when i was driving over to producer andrew's house for the recording tonight i was thinking about how are we going to tackle the discussion of this wordless text and i um was thinking about scott mcleod who is the most famous comic book theorist um and in his book understanding comics he talks about with imagery there's a process of abstraction that um, if you have an image that is like an exact photograph or photorealistic rendering of someone, one person can really identify with that because it is them, right? And everyone else can say, well, that's a person, but they're not going to like personally identify with it. And the more abstract an image becomes to the point, and he goes through like a process of showing different artistic styles, but to the point where it's like just, um, you know, a circle with two dots and a smiley face, anyone can say, well, that's, that could be me like in the story, like <laughs> because there's no specificity that omits you from that experience. And I was thinking about this book and I think it has um, kind of an experiential abstraction to it because no one is going to imagine that there is anyone who has this exact experience because there's so much that like you said, that's fantastical, but the, the feelings that are evoked in it of the experiences that are being shown, I think that they're actually abstracted because of that fantastic element that's added to it to make you be able to feel uh, more of uh, empathy mm-hmm. and more, more of a personal empathy for, for what these characters are experiencing in this um, sense of othering and the sense of alienation from what's, what's around them. Yeah. One thing I realized, because I've certainly read or, or seen other immigration immigrant stories before. In fact, I, I just recently rewatched uh, Brooklyn with, with Saoirse Ronan, but all the other immigrant stories I've ever read have been about people either coming to the U S or, or coming to a place that's pretty similar to the US, you know, like Western Europe or something. Um, and so even though I kind of understood intellectually, like, oh, it's different and confusing and the food's weird and you don't know how anything works. Um, this book is very, very good. Like just because just because it's the city is so has so many fantastical elements that like it's like nothing anyone has ever experienced. And so because he starts out in an environment that is more like my environment, um, I, I come along with him and, and I'm equally bewildered when I can't figure out what the food is and I can't figure out how to make things work and I can't figure out why things are flying around or, you know, or which way the letter should read go or anything. whatever. That was, it, it, yeah. for me, where I was like, what is this language? What is, what yeah. is, what is he done here? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, 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 okay. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, and I, well, I think whenever you have the immigrant story where it's coming to the world in which you're familiar, again, so often it is stories of people coming to the U.S., we have the inherent jingoism and nationalistic pride to say, well, they're going to get better. Right. <laughs> and so they're, right. they're going to get used to it and appreciate it because yeah. it's us. I, I have I have an acquaintance who um, grew up in the U.S., but 
um, now lives in Taiwan and married a woman from there. And his children are bilingual in English and, and Chinese. But he he mentioned the other day of like, yeah, I don't know if my grandchildren are going to speak English very well. Like they like that might be the last, you know, the last of my generation who speaks English might be my kids. And I like the idea that your grandchildren would not be able to speak your language is just something that had like never occurred to me. But of course, that's extremely common with, you know, like the stereotype is that the first generation speaks, speaks the, you know, the, the language from the old country really well and the new language kind of well. And the second generation is like fully bilingual because they're they grow up with the new language, but they also grow up speaking to their parents. And the third generation um speaks the new language really well and the old language a little bit maybe and the fourth generation is gone like yeah, that's just a pattern in, in language yeah, yeah in, in, in language acquisition um but yeah the idea that your your you know offspring would not speak your language but and that obviously like you know the the languages that my great-grandparents spoke or something mm-hmm. are not all languages that i speak anymore so <laughs> like on that note joseph and i have a really direct connection to that because our father is only second generation American. His some of his grandparents never spoke English. Like our great great grandmother never learned English. She only spoke Polish. And then our dad's parents would speak Polish to each other when they didn't want the kids to understand. <laughs> and then our father speaks like four phrases in Polish, and none of none of the siblings do except me because I lived in Poland yeah. for two years. Now you are fluent in Polish. <laughs> yeah, and so but I have but that's, no Polish. That's, that's an anomaly <laughs> yes. because of you know international travel Mm -hmm. um and and i think um also worth noting is like i know joseph and todd and i all have experience living for extended periods of time in foreign countries i don't know kirsta if if you did but so we've seen this perspective from the i don't understand any of these signs (laughs) perspective oh yeah (laughs) interesting Um, thing about that language and language disappearing um just moving uh, from Utah, where there is a pretty substantial Hispanic community, to southern, rural, southern Michigan, where there is essentially no Hispanic community. Um, you are the Hispanic like community now. <laughs> we're struggling. We're struggling yeah. uh, with our kids, who they're, they're, my kids' first language is Spanish. Yeah. Uh, and we're struggling. Like, we're having to do some pretty, like, we have to have a really concrete plan. Yeah. Uh, about how to keep our kids speaking Spanish or it would be gone tomorrow. Um, yeah. And that's, and they're, you know, like second generation. And I mean, I forget that my kids are half Mexican, but they are, <laughs> you know, like really <laughs> half Mexican. Um, and, and, you know, we're trying to like not let them forget that. Uh, but it's, it's tricky when you're, when there's just nobody else around you. Yeah. Well, and it really made me appreciate why you have things like, you know, like the Chinatown or the little Italy where you can, where you can like, mm-hmm. where you can talk to people or where you can get food that looks normal instead of like, everything's weird and has spikes and has stuff growing out of it, you know? Um, and, and, and again, not that I was like, not that I was like dismissive of those areas before, but it just kind of really drove home of like, okay, with all the, with all the difficult, weird things you have to do in this new place, at least there's one place where you know everyone and you know how to talk to everyone and you know, and everyone can talk to you. You don't have to feel like, you're dumb and you don't, you know, you don't understand things or whatever. Um, yeah, you, it's just, it's just a little piece of, of home. I think one thing that this book does really well um, is sometimes when we talk about alienation, I think there's like the subject 
object of it. Like the, that word of alienation can kind of go both ways. Like, mm-hmm. Are you alienating someone else or are you feeling alienated? And in a, uh, like, like Kirsten said, in a lot of immigration stories that uh, we consume in America, they're about people coming to America. And so they have been, they feel alienated by us, but we just assume, well, they're going to acclimate because <laughs> America. Uh, and, and, and like, so, so we don't feel that um, other. And this, this book makes you feel, you know, the, being the subject of alienation mm-hmm. um, in a way that I, I think some other texts don't do quite, quite as successfully. Um, and, and so again, that like the level of empathy gets increased because um, you, you just feel like the, the kind of panic it would be to be like, I don't know how to get food mm-hmm. and no one understands me and I don't understand them. And, and I, I think even if people haven't traveled to um, foreign lands, I think most people have the experience of like being outside their comfort zone to the point where like, I don't like, I'm not oriented anymore. I don't know which way is North, South, East, West and how to get from point A to B. Um, but then when you couple that with the language barrier and uh, in this case, you know, not just the, the spoken language, but like any, any marker is just gone. You have no cultural context for where you're supposed to go and you feel it. Um, and again, I think it's that level of like that abstraction of just making it a little more fantastical makes everyone be able to feel um, exactly what Sean Tan wanted, uh, you know, exactly what he wanted to be communicated. Yeah. At, at the same time, um, the book is full of, of just small kindnesses from, you know, from so many other people who are, who are from different places and have had different experiences, but still have that experience of coming to a new place. And, you know, and that's why, I mean, that's why, because the first person he meets who helps him out is someone who helps him figure out how to read a map and buy a ticket. And, and I think that that's pretty clearly why the book ends with the same thing as a little girl helping another new person try and figure out their way around. Um, and, and that idea that, no matter what you are going through, there is someone else who's been through it before. And um, someone who'll be coming after. Yeah, and someone who'll be coming after. And and if you can find the person who's been through it before, they will probably help you out. And and hopefully you can also pay that forward to the person who comes next. My mom, uh, one piece of advice that my mom often gives to people is you should always have a friend that's older than you and you should always have a friend that's younger than you. Like, uh, and she gave that advice to my wife when she started having kids and, Mm -hmm. um, she said, you know, you should have like somebody who's, who's been down the road and can help you and somebody that you can help. And I think it's, I think it's really good advice. You're talking about, um, Chinatown, uh, reminded me of the other day we found this magical place in Detroit that's called Mexican town. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've looked so hard for some ingredients that Betty needs to make certain foods. And there just are no, um, there are no like uh, markets around where we are. And there's one that's like 25 minutes away and they have like three things and it's all cost. Oh, like, <laughs> it's just so oh, it's ridiculous. And Betty's like, she needed this, um, she needed this lard, uh, that she buys uh, in, in Utah. You can just buy it anywhere. And you know, Mexico, it's all over the place. And, Um, so we were in Detroit and I looked up, you know, just did it like an internet search and we found this place called Mexican down and it was amazing. And right when we drove in Betty, like her whole face lit up and she was like, Oh, I feel like I'm home. It was amazing. And there are like all these Hispanic people all around and, um, and restaurants and stores and banks. And just, it was, it was like being in, in Mexico and we like pulled into this store. There was this big supermarket and they had all the food that she needed. And she was, (laughs) we spent a lot of money (laughs) buying all these ingredients that she needed. And, um, but it was just, uh, it was so cool to see, um, like how much that meant to her, uh, Mm -hmm. 
after after you know what has felt like a, a long time of just being kind of isolated um, from that. So it was cool. So for reference, how far are you from Detroit? We're ninety minutes. Okay, it's not like incredibly far, right? Um, but it's far enough that like you don't want to drive that far to go to the grocery store, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 a that's <laughs> a couple of some other outings. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't go there very often, um, but when we do, I'm sure we'll go to Mexican Town every time. <laughs> yes, uh, it was awesome. One thing that I was thinking about this book is just how. Um, like one word that comes to mind when I think of this book is compassion. Uh, and like the word compassion means shared suffering. And there's just so, um, there's so much like beautiful compassion in here. And uh, like the, yes, the small kindnesses that are so important, but also the shared stories um, that bring people together. And uh, it's not, uh, some stories about immigration are about how like the people in the new place are horrible to mm-hmm. immigrants. And, um, and I mean, I think those stories have a place because some people are horrible to immigrants. Um, but this is not that story. This is a story about, uh, about people, um, sharing a really hard experience. Um, but that's hard, not because the people in the new place are horrible people, just because it's hard. It's really hard and, uh, everything's different and you don't know how stuff works. And, uh, and the beauty that comes from just being able to sit down with somebody that's been through something like that and share together, um, there's as much, I mean, at least as much, I feel like laughter and kindness as there is like hard things. And the hard things are scary, like getting yeah. sucked up by giant yeah, vacuum like, people like and, and <laughs> oh, yeah. well, also the it's things they're running from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, the dragons that they're running from and the, the, the scene where the guy runs and runs and runs and then and then comes on the pile of bones. It's reminded me so mm-hmm. much of like uh, Life is Beautiful when he's walking and, and comes comes up to the, the giant pile of bones. Um, I mean, it, 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 it touches on the most horrible things that have happened in the last, I mean, maybe in the history of the world. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But, it, but when you finish this, like you're misty-eyed just because – because of the sweetness of it and the compassion, it's really um, powerful storytelling. I think. Yeah, and it's also um, when when the when the man's wife and daughter come, it's really interesting to see. I mean, because because we've been go you know with the man in the story, um, and he he is so different. Even you know a year or, or a year and a half. We're not. I think we're not entirely sure how much time has passed, but even like less than two years, definitely. Um, because she comes out and she's so worried and she's so, you know, until she sees him and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. When he came here, he was that worried and that stressed out. And now he's, you know, got a routine and he's kind of figuring things out there. Um, so so just to see, I mean, just when they come a little bit later, just to see them being in his, you know, in the place where he was very recently. Um, on on a slightly different topic, I, I read a really good interview with Shantan about about the book and he said that um when he was studying graphic novels to do this he also looked at manga a lot and realized that um that japanese manga artists would often focus on on moments of kind of like like kind of find a way to pause a moment or or focus on a moment of stillness i guess in ways that american comic artists really didn't and there are a few pages that are just i mean there's a page that that's just him it's like 12 little drawings and it's just him looking at clouds outside the window you know but it's much more effective at like okay you're like just sitting here and waiting and you've got nothing to do or or that um there's a page that shows a year passing 
and it shows this little flower in which looks weird because everything looks weird in the new country um this little flower that um that is just going through different seasons and it blooms and then it like has this flower and then it kind of goes to seed and the seeds fall out and then it like this snow yeah and it's just this really lovely sort of slowing down of time and stopping to kind of pause in the moment and i could i could definitely tell that influence i think it, uh, some of those moments are to me evocative of old film oh, uh, uh-huh. uh so like the the sequence of the flower changing in citizen kane uh there's a sequence where um his wife is um it's been a long time since i watched it but i remember this uh, pretty clearly it's just, like she she's bored in this like mansion like place that he's built but she's doing um a jigsaw puzzle and you see here complete four different jigsaw puzzles but each one's a different season uh-huh. and, and it's the passage of a year yeah. in jigsaw puzzle nice um and then uh would he uh, in Arrival, when he's doing uh, the the mundane task at the factory where he ends up working, um, it made me think of a couple different silent films that deal with um, the dehumanization of people working in factories. So um, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, uh, where Chaplin literally yeah. enters the machine at a certain point and comes out like nice entirely. But and then the, the, the giant wheels that they have in the background of the factory made me think of that. Um, and similarly, the way that is drawn made me think of the Fritz Lang film Metropolis. <laughs> when uh, workers literally um, sacrificed yeah. into a machine. Like there's an explosion, but the uh, one of the characters has a vision of it being like um, ancient slaves being fed to an ancient God. Um, and that that's what we're doing to workers. Uh, you know, that we're, that we're sacrificing them or we're de- dehumanizing them to the point that they become part of the machinery. Um, and I don't know that he went back and like studied. I feel like film, he has. Yeah, I has. had like, if Oh, it yeah. felt close enough that I, I just, it was immediately evocative to me of those, um, some of those sequences. I had both in, of those in thoughts in my head. Producer Andrew wanted to jump. Yeah, when Christo was mentioning um, the pacing in manga and the transitions between panels, uh, Scott McCloud deals with that in his chapter in Understanding Comics about panel transitions. And time. Right? And yeah, and how it breaks down time. And he said, uh, like, more, more than any other differences you see in any cultures, when you compare... American comics and manga, which especially at the time was the more prevalent alternative to American comics. The the French comics hadn't really um, risen to where it is now. Um, he said, like, there's a massive distinction in the panel transitions um, where manga uses this panel transition where it's like three or four elements of one scene that are very closely related. Like these might even be simultaneous, um, simultaneous but different angles on the same scene. And American comics very rarely do that. American comics are very action oriented and direct, um, you know, this action followed by this action, followed by this action. And these scene setting moments are less common in American comics, but more common in manga. And I think that's some of the pacing that, that you were talking about, Kirsta, where you get this slowing down because it's like these moments, like, I don't know if these are different moments or if it's different angles on the same moment, but it's creating more of a feeling than than a sequence. Yeah. Than a narrative sequence. Yeah. Um, and it's actually one of the things that's hardest for manga to translate into anime. It's one of the reasons that Western audiences have a hard time um, watching anime because they'll do really long establishing shots and sequences that break up your tension and your action in, in a way that's really disruptive to Western audiences where you get like this long distance shot of something. And most of it is like a, a pasture. Mm-hmm. And then you get two other shots before you're back to the action that you had just left. <laughs> or even, uh, I mean, I've not watched very much anime, most of it for this podcast. <laughs> we've tackled them. But the, like, even in their action sequences, like it'll be like a freeze frame with a sound effect that's being drawn out sometimes in the background. And like the, the mm-hmm. freeze frame holds for what 
for me as a Western viewer is like, that's a really long still shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this is the middle of a fight scene. <laughs> or especially when it like comes back from a, a big impactful moment like that, you'll get like four shots of different things before you get back to your character. Yeah. And sometimes on the screen at the same time, they'll pop up different panels of mm-hmm. like different angles of the same thing. And like, well, like, it's interesting. <laughs> if you're, if you're looking for this, when you watch something like studio Ghibli, if you watch spirited away and look for these kinds of moments, you'll see them. Yeah. Um, you guys have both mentioned uh, like the empathy and the compassion that he finds in other people who kind of tell their immigrant story. And I was wondering if like, what are some of the parallels to the real world that we see in how, you know, these, these different versions of um, often tragedy that they're running from, mm-hmm. because in the, in his own story, in the first one uh, you described Kirsta that like his city is full of dragons. Like we see these spiked tails, giant spiked tails going around. But then in some of the wide shots that is, are drawn it almost becomes like pollution like mm-hmm. it, it, are these spike tails like just really smoke and pollution and just very poor living conditions uh that he's running from and even if, i think that's deliberately evocative of that uh, even if he's not trying to make a one-to-one correlation and with some of these other uh tales that we receive from other immigrants who then show kindness to him uh so like the the giants who vacuum people <laughs> um i, I think you know, what what are some of the parallels that we're seeing there? Can I can I read you uh, a quote from the interview I found I, with Sean Tan? I will allow it. Okay, <laughs> I um, think he's probably going to be able to answer this better right. than our speculation. <laughs> so this is, or at least contribute to it. Um, so this is kind of on fantasy versus realism. Even the most imaginary phenomena in the book are intended to carry some metaphorical weight, even though they don't refer to specific things and may be hard to fully explain. One of the images I've been thinking of for years involved the scene of rotting tenement buildings over which are swimming some kind of huge black serpents. I realize that these could be read a number of ways, literally as an infestation of monsters or more figuratively as some kind of oppressive threat. And even then, it is open to the individual reader to decide whether this might be political, economic, personal, or something else, depending on what ideas or feelings the picture may inspire. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, maybe the, the the war flashback is probably the most grounded one. The most, like, there's a yeah. one correlation. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or the one that has the, the, the least amount of fantasy in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's... There, there's forbidding people to learn or to read, and then there's having to sneak out of a place and and pay someone to smuggle you out, and then there's just some kind of well, almost slavery for that one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, for the for the um the girl who for, was working the um, furnaces. In the right? furnaces. Mm-hmm. I um when I I lived in California. Um, I don't think I've mentioned this on this podcast. Uh, I was there was um. I was living in the house of, uh, of our bishop. And, um, so like a clergyman and, uh, he got a phone call one day and he said, um, I need you to come with me. And I was like, okay. So we jumped in this car and we drove, he was a super successful, like a contractor and had this giant house in Palo Alto. And, uh, we got in this car and we drove to the, other side of the tracks, which is literally on the other side of <laughs> some railroad tracks. And There's we, a reason they say that. <laughs> yeah, there is a reason that they say that. Um, and we drove to this little tiny house and it was, it was right on the railroad tracks. And um, like every time a train would go by, the house would just shake. I mean, it was so close to the tracks. It was kind of like comical. I mean, it felt like a Tim Burton movie or something, uh, but it was real. And we went in and there was this uh, Hispanic lady. She was from El Salvador. Uh, and she was just like weeping, 
with uh, the kind of sadness that you you just almost never see in your whole entire life. Like this woman was completely destroyed and she was just weeping and weeping and weeping and weeping like biblical weeping. And, uh, and she calmed down enough um, to tell us that. So she's from El Salvador and she had left a son in El Salvador like 11 years before. And she had been trying to save up enough money uh, to bring him to the United States. And he was like a super good kid and he was living at his grandma's house and um, he was working. Uh, I mean, he was going to school and he was getting really good grades and he was just like, just trying to live a good life uh, and be safe until his mom could save up enough money to bring him to the U S and, uh, and she said three days before he disappeared from school mm. and they had found his body, like somebody had just dumped his body back on the school three days later oh. and he was dead. Oh. And she was just, she was just in pieces. Yeah. And, and the thing that was, the thing that was killing her was that she couldn't go back. Yeah. And she couldn't, she couldn't go back because if she went back, she'd never, she'd never make it back here. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, it was such a sobering moment for me. And I mean, I've, I've met a lot of immigrants in my life. I've worked a lot with, um, especially with the Hispanic community in lots of different places in the United States. And I've heard lots of stories, uh, from people. Um, and that, like that one stands out in my mind, but there are so many stories like that of people. (laughs) And when you hear a story like that, you think, yeah, there really are monsters. There there really are monsters out there and, and people will do anything, uh, to get away from them. And, um, and you feel so, uh, like so helpless (laughs) and also so willing to help, um, and like to want to do something. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, there are some pretty terrible places, uh, and those monsters are real (laughs) and they're super scary and, and, and be, and, and, and you just don't, you don't know it until you spend time with people and you hear them swapping stories like this. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a powerful experience. I'm pretty sure I remember it may have been on the Wikipedia page for uh, the arrival um, where Sean Tan said that one goal that he had in this was he was seeing uh, vilification of immigrants in mm-hmm. Australia mm-hmm. and w- he hoped that this could help to increase em- empathy for uh, what immigrants were both fleeing from and what they're experiencing when they arrived in a new land mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously. Uh, okay, I found the quote. It was on Wikipedia. It said, in Australia, people don't stop to imagine what it's like for some of these refugees. And I think we could probably insert any country that's receiving refugees. Sure. <laughs> not, not unique to Australia. Uh, people don't stop to imagine what it's like for some of these refugees. They just see them as a problem once they're here without thinking about the bigger picture. I don't expect the book to change anybody's opinion about things. But if it at least makes them pause to think, I'll feel as if I've succeeded in something. I think one of the things that I love the most about this book is the very... In the very last chapter, um, which is, it parallels the first chapter in so many ways. Um, and we see these images of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's different. It's not exactly the same thing. Uh, these people are different and they, and they really have like, they've, they've kind of made it and they're not like, you know, living with the white picket fence. Um, but the dad understands the world and he under and he feels safe enough in this world to send his little girl out to to pick up some things, and she's like happy and and um, integrated, but not not completely changed. And like there's still something that's very them, 
mm-hmm. and something that comes from their uh, their previous culture. Uh, like they didn't lose that. The dad didn't lose his ability to do origami, but his origami is different now because he does the Pac-Man mm-hmm. mouse dog uh, in origami, yeah. which he which he never could have done before. <laughs> and that's a that's a beautiful thing that couldn't have come uh, mm-hmm. without you know them being here. And I just think there's something really beautiful about uh, like integration and assimilation and um, like how beautiful that can be when when somebody like makes this transition and they they begin to feel comfortable and uh, and start. Uh, I don't know, like life is good. I mean, their life feels good at the end of this. Uh, and, and I think that there's something really uh, touching there. And and based on, you know, based on their environment, it doesn't look like they're really mm-hmm. any like wealthier than they were before. You know, it's, it's not that it's not that they, they have a pretty modest um, apartment in the first place. And then it's, you know, it's still pretty modest when at, at the end, but it's very, they're very relaxed they're the and they're from happy the place and, and they have the and, little appliances you know, from the, from the right, new place. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they've got, you know, they've got stuff on the wall and it's, you know, old pictures. And like you said, it's like, like the origami Pac-Man mouse dog is a really great example of like, of, of combining that old and new or applying the old to the new. And, 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 you know, the, the little girl before she drew pictures of her family and now she draws pictures of her family and have also flying ships because they live in a place that has mm-hmm. flying ships now. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a lot. Um, it's, it's just a lot. Yeah. A lot. There, there's a, there's a peace there and a contentment and a, and a lack of worry. And I was uh, going back through and looking at uh, some of the people who help him out. So the first family where he goes and eats the meal, um, you see they're cooking differently than what he cooks, uh, but also they get out musical instruments and play those. And then there's the other man who who teaches him a game. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing both the, the music and the game are deliberate, like um, deliberately symbolic of things that immigrants bring with them, like sure. culture that gets mm-hmm. added into uh, the, the countries that receive these. And uh, it's, it's going to, it's going to change and evolve most likely in that contact. Uh, but it's going to add something that was absent there before. And um, I mean, in America, there's very little you can point to and say, <laughs> not a result, uh, yeah. you know, present American culture. That's not a result of immigrant, uh, you know, Im- immigrants coming here. Um, but that's one of the the fascinating aspects of immigration is, is, you know, what gets added to the existing culture and how both things get transformed in this process. I, I read this really great, article a few months ago that just basically I've talked about how um, how different types of foods fall in immigrants and new foods, you know, bring new foods with them and new kinds of food cultures and how, um, you know, like, like the, the foods that we now take for granted, like, like you're talking about Mexican food. Like I assume that every grocery store, just because of places I've lived has, you know, has a Mexican section of the grocery store or something. Um, but even like, even in my lifetime living in Utah, you know, it used to be that, um, that you'd have like, a couple of Mexican restaurants in town, but now you go, you know, down downtown and there's like Salvadorian and Peruvian and, you know, and, and like very, very specific. So it's not just, it's not like generic Mexican food for, you know, for, for, well, the Tex-Mex. England, yeah, 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 but. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so even, and even that change, um, or, or the things that you take for granted that, that you don't realize like, oh, this is actually because of people who've been here for a long time or people who've come here or people who, have started coming here that, that now this, this, and then food is just a very concrete way of, of bringing that culture with them. I, uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard there's a new Netflix series called, um, ugly delicious, I think is the name of it. Um, <laughs> and it's a restaurateur, but I've heard like the first episode is like breaking down pizza around the world. And, oh, and fun. the fact that, you know, pizza, like in America, we just kind of assume Italian, but he goes yeah. and sees the versions of pizza, like oh, the, the bread with Argentinian pizza. 
Yeah, no, but from all over the world and explores like the role of, of pizza in American culture too. I, again, I've just heard, I've seen multiple people talking about this new Netflix series on social media. I want to go watch it, but it, it sounds like it's getting into some of the very issues that Kirsten was just mentioning about. Like food is a concrete way you can kind of tra- trace some ethnography because you can often pinpoint when something entered, how it got transformed from where it was. And it sounds like this, this new Netflix documentary is going to do some of that work in an interesting way. Let me tell you a little bit about Polish pizza. <laughs> Producer Andrew's coming in. It does not come with sauce on it. Like it is the the bread and then the cheese and then the toppings. You get sauce on the side and you get marinara sauce, typical pizza sauce. But you also get a garlic sauce, which is so much better than pizza sauce. <laughs> um, and are you dipping? Is that the process? Yeah, it, it, well, you can dip or you can pour. Um, it depends on if it's takeout, if, you, if you've got it delivered or if you're there at the restaurant. If you're there at the restaurant, it's usually in pourable. Um, yeah vessels but they also have menu like the menu for pizza in poland is usually at least 30 to 60 menu pizzas (laughs) that have different toppings and so you look at the name and the number and also the list of toppings and they have all these names like the american pizza which has corn on it (laughs) it's like chicken and corn it's like that's american pizza that's not american pizza i mean like that's Pizza with like American food, I guess. But, um, or there's like things with broccoli on them. There's all these things. And, but they've also got names like Manhattan, Brooklyn. Like there's like group specific names, like, like America specific names, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the <laughs> toppings. But then you also have the weird ones, like menu item pizzas that you can get. And it is like you can ask for the 37 and they are going to know that you need the pizza that has tuna. And yogurt and pickles on it. Like globs of yogurt. (laughs) And I don't understand. (laughs) But that's a menu item pizza. (laughs) Also, like their pepperoni pizza, it just has onions on it. Like it has pepperoni and onions. And that's what you mean when you say a pepperoni pizza. Like the onions are understood to be part of a pepperoni pizza. (laughs) What else would you put on a pepperoni pizza? (laughs) Everyone knows this. (laughs) Did you ever have pizza in uh, Mexico, Joe? Uh, never from a restaurant. Some members uh, made us pizza, but I, I, they were usually trying to mimic American pizza when they're doing it. But, it, but, he puts- but it's kind of the same way as in America when you try to mimic Mexican food. You're not. <laughs> You're not really hitting that mark. Exactly right. <laughs> Betty makes Betty makes some amazing pizza, but she puts some um, chorizo and jalapenos and beans on it, and it is so good. <laughs> I definitely had some chorizo pizza. When I was down in oh yeah, <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Are we ready to wrap this up? Uh, I just want to say for any listeners one more time, this is an amazing book. And also, it is a very quick read. Uh, Producer Andrew, when we walked in, you said, oh, I haven't read that yet. Can I look at it? And you read the whole thing in less than 10 minutes, right? Uh, it can be that quick of a read. I read it a little more closely, but I think even if you're reading it closely, you're not chalking out a half hour of time even <laughs> to, to yeah. say, I'm going to go read this. And I think um, one of the things that's so great about it is because it is so accessible, like kids, kids can read this and they might not, you know, end up with a deep discussion about the ethnography of food uh, or the subject object of alienation. Uh, but I think they're going to see an increase of empathy uh, just by reading this, even if it's not, um, you know, the same kind of deep dive conversation that we just had right here. And it's it's accessible uh, for all ages. So here's a quick question. Um, because it is a graphic novel, I think it gets put in juvenile collections a lot. Do you think this is... 
a young adult book? Do you think it's an an adult book? Do you? I think it's the best version of the all ages label. Okay. <laughs> Which sometimes all ages means this is just for kids. Right. Uh, but I think this is something that definitely can, tra- uh, you know, traverse the, the age groups. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't visualize it as a children's no. book. No, but I, I, like I said, my, I know my daughter's picked it up more than once from the library. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like, oh, don't read that one. You're not right. ready for it yet. Right. <laughs> in any way. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, we I, should mention just in case nobody knows, um, this is not the same story as the movie Arrival. No, no. Yes. with Jeremy Renner, <laughs> which is also and uh, Amy Adams. Yes, Amy Adams. Yes, and yeah, Ink this aliens. is not the same thing. <laughs> if you're waiting for the aliens, <laughs> though that I mean, there are Pac-Man mouse dogs, but, right, uh, yeah. not, the same, not the same thing. No. I imagine at some point we'll be covering that Arrival on this podcast. Oh, I hope so. If you do, I'll come back. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it deals with linguistics a lot. So it's right in your real house. Yes. Yes, so yes, we'll talk about, yeah, no. Uh, uh, a, a friend and I had a long discussion about Warfian linguistics and, and uh, its, its application in Arrival. But we decided that ultimately the least realistic aspect of that movie was the idea that a physicist would have quite that much biceps as Genesee, as Jeremy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I'm okay with with that suspension of disbelief. You'll, you'll allow that. It, just, it also seems like a lot of people are fine with um, a royal king being as ripped as he is in Black Panther. People are like, that's fine. We'll allow that's okay. That. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> he has not sat on the lap of luxury and just relaxed. No, no. <laughs> okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us uh, for show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows. Go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out. Uh, we'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 23 when we talked about uh, the graphic novel Mouse. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Producer Andrew is at DizMinute. Uh, and Kirsta, you are still at underscore BYU librarian? BYU underscore librarian. Oh, BYU underscore librarian. Sorry. And uh, our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have great uh, conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye-bye. What do we got? Oh, I thought you were going to jump in with the nope. Todd. Sorry, I, I thought we'd cut you no, off. No, you hadn't. I was just, uh, okay. I was just pushing um, the green button on affirming all of what you have said because I think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs>